change always times itself correctly. Yes, we might be very resistant to it, but there comes in now the mindset. How I manage change, first of all, is through the mindset. Change is always an opportunity. And if it's there, don't fight it. It's, it's not going to help. You're going to put your energy in the wrong place. Instead, you need to look at it as an opportunity and you need to start searching for the opportunity in light of this change. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of Veo Executive Academy podcast, where we give you exclusive insights from some of the brightest leaders today who all have one thing in common. They are or were students of our MBA programs. I'm Chadomir Pushica, your host, and it is my task to ask the right questions so that you can learn more about the person, their industry, their mindset, and how they manage to bring positive change to businesses and their communities. Today, it is my pleasure to talk to May Lehrer. May is a business coach and a senior level executive with over 20 years of global experience in building and executing strategies for companies of different sizes, from startups to big multinational corporations and governments. She brings with her invaluable experiences from three continents and seven distinct markets, Estonia, USA, Austria, Denmark, India, China, Russia. She's an expert in change management. She's our International Advisory Board President and our Global Executive MBA alumna. Hi, May, and welcome to the show. Hello. You seem to be dealing with one thing that never goes out of vogue, change. When did you decide that accompanying change was what you wanted to focus on in your career? Since the beginning of my career and also in my life, I always liked change. I cannot sit still for too long. And also as an executive, I discovered it quite early that there is no point in making me an executive of a company which is in a firm course without any obstacles. I will get bored very fast. And also being a business developer at some point, helping to develop new products and everything, which is also to do with change. It was so clear to me that everything to do with change and turnaround as well, which gives me a lot more challenge than being in a steady boat. So I'm always yawning for challenges. And speaking about challenges and change, which is really something that, that's a constant in our lives and in every company, everything is changing. So I wanted to ask you, what was the most challenging project you were involved in regarding change? Definitely the most challenging change project was my latest project as a CEO of Baltica Group, where the goal was to change the stock-listed company from bankruptcy. Company had unfortunately not had good performance already for a decade or over a decade, and they had come to the point where there was really a turnaround necessary and a radical turnaround, not only tweaking a little bit here and a little bit there. It was really necessary to go from ground up, and that was definitely in my entire career the most challenging. Also, I set for myself a very firm deadline. I said, we need to do it in 14 months. At the end of the day, with any turnaround or change, in the first stage, for the first stage, you don't have much time. And yeah, the company had 1,000 employees, so it was relatively big. And we managed it in 14 months, which was, of course, not easy for anybody, also not the people in my team, because I really put them to work to the max, including myself. So that was definitely the most challenging project in my career. 
and what was exactly not working in the company? What was the main focus? If there was one or several, what did you have to do? Everything from ground up, to say it this way. What was not working? I mean, the company was old. And this is what often happens with companies. The company was over 90 years old and had also a management in place. The former management was a long time in place. So basically, the market had moved faster than the company was moving, which is also very normal if you have such a big, monstrous companies like this one was. Hmm. So the challenge, number one, was, of course, the business model, because the company had fallen a bit behind from the market in the business model. The market had developed a lot faster than the company was able to develop, which is absolutely normal, especially if you have such a big company with 90-year-old traditions. So if you're a CEO of a company which has 90-year-old traditions and you've been a CEO for a long time, you're always facing the obstacle like, should I now break this tradition or not? And that was the cause for the company to need a really radical change. Did that radical change involve actually changing the old management, replacing the old, bringing in new blood? Well, actually, the one new blood that was brought in was me from the other management. The old CEO stepped aside and also did it with, um, I have full respect for him, the way that he did it. He at some point said, now I need to give the new person a chance to take over. The other board members remained on board. And also when it comes to my immediate management team, I made a choice. I said, I am not going to change the management team. I will work with the current management team. But I will focus on developing these people in the management team to the next level. First of all, we had only 14 months changing the management team. A new person comes in, needs at least six or nine months to even get into the company. And also the people in the management team, they had a lot of right competencies. They just haven't had the chance to bring them out. So basically, the only big change in the management team was me replacing the old CEO who decided to step aside and everybody else stayed on board. Of course, in course of the 14 months, which is the first stage of this difficult turnaround, there were people in the management team decided and said, it's not for me, the new course. I don't feel that my competencies are fair enough for the new course. And they stepped aside. I also brought in new competencies. But the key is really, I did the turnaround with the existing team to a large extent. Yes, and that's a really important point now that you mentioned. You replaced the CEO, so you were the driver of change, which really confirms that it is up to the top management to drive change. If there is willingness of the management to change things, you don't actually have to replace the entire team. So you have to show the willingness. And how did you go about replacing the other management team members who decided to step aside during those first 14 months? This was also a very natural process because, first of all, we planned the entire change together with the management team. It wasn't like that. I went in there and then only on the board we decided that now we do this or that. As formerly a strategy consultant and, and also a coach, I really took the role of guiding the entire management team for us to define where do we want to go and how do we get there. And every business area made then, once we had the strategic picture in place, every business area made for them a roadmap. How do they now get to the new point where they need to go? 
And in the beginning, in the first eight months, there was actually no changes. We only had to bring in online competencies because our old online shop person, unfortunately, stayed home with a baby and we needed a new one. So we had to bring in a new person there. But everybody else remained on board. The time when then eventually one person or another decided that they have to leave was really already about 10 months into the change. And the reason why they left, some of them really realized that I have now planned the change. I have started going with it. And I feel I want to do something else in my life. A lot of them had been with the company already for a long time. So if you're ready for 10 years, 15 years with the same company, it's quite natural at some point to decide I want to do something else. Right. And also we had one change in course of when the corona hit, because corona was also when we were already managing our crisis, then came the double crisis, the double tip, corona. And in corona, we also had unfortunately one team member who decided and said, it's too much for me, I can't do it, because of course the role of managers in corona crisis situation changed completely. You had to become a lot more operational. There was no other choice because the company was already in crisis. Now you had a double crisis on top of it, which means senior level executives, they had to become a lot more operational. And of course, that doesn't fit everybody. Of course. And when you speak about actually turning the company around and developing a new business model, what was the actual shift? What was the old model and what was the new model that you decided to pursue? It was a fashion retail company. And with the old business model, they did everything from A to Z. They did their own design. They had their own manufacturing companies or production facilities. They had their own logistics center. They had their own retail network. So this was the old business model. In the new business model, we chose our areas of strength and focused only on those and then chose business partners with whom we would cover other areas. For instance, we exited production. We said, we're not going to do production ourselves anymore. We will do it only with the partners. We also started uh, looking for partners for our logistics center to outsource also that service and then focus ourselves on the design, which was clearly one of the strengths because the design team, they knew the region, the body types of the people in the region, the taste. So this was clearly the strength. We focused on that one. And of course, we also then became even more focused on the online channels. There was already before the eShop. The company was one of the first in the Baltic markets in fashion retail to have an eShop. But we focused even more on it. Only having an eShop doesn't play out. You need to have in your core that focus. So we started even more focusing on the online channels. And of course, the brand portfolio was also, there were five brands plus three channel brands. And we went down to having actually only one brand. Because at the end of the day, the turnover was only 50 million. So if you have a small turnover, you cannot afford to have that many brands if you also design yourself for these brands. Understood. Understood. And were there any trade-offs in the sense that you're moving to the new business model where you outsource production and logistics? Did that influence maybe some delay in delivery, in shipments, in goods arriving to stores, availability in the online shop? And how did that play out? 
Yeah, absolutely. There is always trade-offs, especially if you have a business, for instance, you have your own production, you've had it for 90 years, and then you say, okay, now I'm going to do it with an external partner. Already before, the company was partially also using external partners. And this was a process that was already ongoing before I went in there, because I was, before becoming a CEO, I was an external consultant. I was helping them already earlier from an external position. So they were already in the process of exiting and preparing it all. This was one and a half years long process to get to the fact where you can say, okay, now I can close my factory because I have my suppliers, I have the necessary partners on board. This is a long process, especially if you're such a small player, because if we're talking about a total turnover of 50 million, it means you are for the external production facilities, you are quite a small player. Yes. So speaking now about change, I want to ask you if there are any patterns that you have noticed during the many years of managing change. What are the key questions you're asking yourself? What is the next big thing and the major challenge? Like, is there any change that you're seeing happening now, which may probably not be in full swing, but which you see coming and that companies will have to adapt to? Starting from the beginning, the pattern in change. Yes, I always notice that change always comes when the time is ripe. Mm -hmm. And when change comes, it means that you really need to choose a new direction. Be it in a business life or a personal life, it, it really doesn't matter. Change always times itself correctly. Yes, we might be very resistant to it. But there comes in now the mindset. How I manage change, first of all, is through the mindset. Change is always an opportunity. And if it's there, don't fight it. It's not going to help. You're going to put your energy in the wrong place. Instead, you need to look at it as an opportunity and you need to start searching for the opportunity in light of this change. This is also what we did, for instance, in this company when we say, okay, there is a change. What people are very used to as well is then always saying, if you tell them, okay, we need to redo this process, for instance, an easy example, we need to make it more efficient. Then people are resistant to change, majority of people. And this is very common. If you've done something for 20 years like this, why change? Mm -hmm. And what I've always done as a manager is I always say, you just cannot come and say no. No needs to be always accompanied by the solution that you want to offer by an alternative solution. And just coming and saying, no, you can't change the process, doesn't work. No, you can't change, needs to be accompanied by a solution that you offer yourself from your side. Saying, no, I don't like the new process, it doesn't work like that. So whenever I have been managing different teams, then the first thing that I always do, I tell people, you just cannot come and oppose something. You can always oppose, but if you oppose, you need to have your own idea. What is a better solution? Very good. Very good. And now the second part of my question, is there any change you see happening, but it's not ripe yet? <laughs> I think the entire COVID situation has brought a lot of change for the entire world. And many companies have still not swallowed this change or they don't want to. They're still fighting back. They're still resistant to it. But there is change which you cannot fight. There is going to be change in the way you work. Change in the way that you run your people. Maybe you're very used to running your people only being in the office. No, you as a manager, you need to now adapt to the fact 
that your people don't have to be in the office all the time. They can work from anywhere. Depends, of course, on the nature of the work. But there is a lot of areas, a lot of jobs which you can do from anywhere in the world. So this is one of the major changes that is going to happen in the entire corporate world. And the companies who do not adapt to this change or they don't look for the opportunities, they're going to start losing the top talent. Because let's be honest, people are in that sense also a bit of egoistish. They want what's best for them. And they want the freedom. They want the flexibility. I still don't understand in the 21st century, why do we say the working hours are from eight to five? <laughs> you know, at summertime and springtime, it works. Wintertime, your brain is not even awake at eight o'clock. That's true. Why do we want to squeeze from people this out knowing that they are not working, especially creative people? If they sleep until 10 o'clock or, okay, sleep until eight and then start working at 10, they will do in six hours more than they do in eight hours if you have them sit there by the desk at eight o'clock. And Corona has actually helped us to change a lot the work environment. This is the one place. Of course, it's also changing the markets. It has put us all to question the globalization and the benefits of globalization. And should we be global or should we be local? And there, of course, the dilemma is still ongoing. We cannot answer. But the one area of change which is already here is really the work environment. And there, the companies have to really think hard. How do they open themselves up to the talent, which is more flexible, but at the end of the day can be a lot more beneficial for the company? And of course, managers need to rethink the way that they manage. It's not only being there in person, but how do you find the right rhythm? Because at the end of the day, a person who is happy themselves is going to be able to contribute a lot more to your company. Let's say you have a programmer, and if the programmer is happy working from the beach in Spain, then okay, let them be on the beach in Spain. Why do they need to be in a building in Vienna, or why do they need to be in a building in Tallinn? If they are happy there, let them be happy, and they will be more creative, and they are going to add a lot more value. But that means you, in your corporate system and your corporate work environment, you need to make this available. That's true, and an excellent point. One thing that we still don't know, probably, is whether all people will embrace this change because there are so many who actually want to go to work, maybe not work eight hours a day, but still have the physical contact and some social life that comes with the corporate life. So that's probably a question that will still remain open. What do you think? Absolutely. I know I brought an example of a programmer being on the beach in Spain, but of course, people are different. And this is what I'm also trying to emphasize, that what Corona has brought out is that it has opened our eyes that other ways are also possible for the companies, that there is other ways which are also possible. If before, for instance, the company was so stuck that you need to be in the office, they didn't even think about it. But what about these people who cannot do it this way, who cannot give their maximum contribution? It doesn't mean that it's going to be now flexible for everybody or there is no offices anymore. Definitely not. It means that companies need to adapt more than one employment policy and more than one employment environment, they need to give the flexibility so that the people can go with their different needs. And nobody has the same needs. The basic needs, yeah, we all need food. And <laughs> But when it comes to now the work environment, people have different needs. Yes. And you need to accompany them. Right now, we have tried in the world for a long time to kind of like do a corporate dictatorship. 
Yeah, we, we don't like dictatorship when it's in the government, but in the corporate world, we still do it. We dictate. If you work with us, you know, these are the rules and you need to abide with these rules. And if you don't like them, you cannot work for us. So it's really about giving the flexibility and people who don't like change. Of course, there is a lot of people who don't like change, who don't want to do anything differently. There will be, of course, resistance. And this is something that we need to overcome. And there, again, in a corporate world, it's a lot easier because there a management, first of all, needs to change their mindsets. And then they are an example to other employees themselves already. Fish always starts rotting from the head. The same applies in the corporate world. Exactly, because we were talking about the importance of management and their willingness to accept change and then propagate it inside their own organization. So do you think we're close to today's management being ripe for embracing this change? Because when we think about it, most of the generations that are now coming to management level positions, see management, there are people who grew up in the online world. They're digital natives. Do you think it's going to be a very easy change and it's going to happen very smoothly? Or do you think we'll still need a couple of years to fully embrace the change? Oh, we will definitely need more time and it will not be an easy change. There will be, especially in the companies where you have already very experienced managers who have been managers already for 30 years and 40 years and they have done the things the way that they have done. There is going to be a big share of them who are not going to be ever able to embrace this change. Then the key is, will they think about the company and the well-being of the company or the well-being of themselves? Mm -hmm. If they think about the well-being of the company, they will step aside. They will say, my time is out. We need now to hear somebody who comes with the new methods and with a new way of thinking and helps to spread it in our company. The ones who will sit there and will not make the decision in favor of the company, but will make the decision in favor of themselves and will continue. For those companies, the change will be, of course, a lot harder. But thank God there is also these old world managers or the ones who have been executives for a long time with uh, certain habits that actually embrace the change. Unfortunately, in my experience, it's always the minority that is open to change, but there are also these. And for the companies where you have on the top level these managers that are open to change, for them it will be a lot easier. But you will have especially these big, huge conglomerates where you have, for instance, in supervisory boards, people who have been so used to their position there and who would never give it up. And uh, th there will be fight. It's not going to be easy. But a lot depends on the CEO of the company and their openness to change. And do you think now speaking about the publicly listed companies who have pressure from both the shareholders and the board, do you think change there will happen more easily because they're incumbents, they have been there for a long time, there is like a paradox. They probably have more senior management who have been in their positions for a much longer period of time. But on the other hand, they have a lot more pressure to get the company ahead of the competition and satisfy the shareholders. So do you think they will probably be more willing or more forced to change first? Or will that be private companies that are not listed? I believe that the private companies will be the forerunners. And why? I believe it because if we take these stock listed and the bigger the companies and the older the management team there is, the more convinced they are themselves that their way is the right way. 
because this way has brought them where they are right now. Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't it be good for another 10 or 20 years? So it's really the mindset issue. In the private companies, they might see it a lot easier. And of course, the decision-making in private companies is also a lot easier than in a big conglomerate or old stock-listed companies. So in that sense, my hypothesis is that it will be a lot easier in the private companies and smaller companies. In big, old companies, there will be bigger resistance and it will be harder. It doesn't matter if they are publicly traded company because at the end of the day, yeah, your stock is out there. But if you as a manager or a management team, you sit there and you strongly believe that your way and your direction is the right direction because it has been the right direction for 30 years already, then why change? And you will see it too late that it was a wrong decision. Your decisions and the impact of your decisions, you will always see a bit later. That's true. Okay, so now may, we mentioned that you have a lot of international experience. And now I want to move to that and ask you a question about whether you recall any point in your career where cultural differences may have been the reason for misunderstanding or may have created a conflict. And what happened and how did you deal with it and how would you deal with it now in the light of all the experience in the meantime? Oh, yeah, I have seen it more than once. I have seen it a lot. <laughs> How did I change? Maybe asking first, going there, and then I'll give you an example. Once I already went into the executive positions, I had already seen two cultures very deeply. One is Estonian culture and then American culture, which are quite extreme. Mm -hmm. So there isn't much in common. One is very outspoken out there. The others are very introverted or really silent. So I had already seen two extremes. So I had already come to realize that not everything is the way that we think it is. So it was easy for me to tackle the situations. In the beginning, having only two cultures that I was exposed to, of course, I still didn't see all the possibilities and I needed more experience with different cultures. But I have witnessed a lot the situations where culture is the key and neither side will step back or neither side will open their eyes to understand the other side. Mm -hmm. So to bring you an example, when I was with a big group, which was headquartered in Denmark, and then they had a lot of smaller companies, daughter companies in different markets. And one of them was in Estonian market. And once I went to the headquarters, because I was promoted to the headquarters, I started working in Denmark. I moved to Denmark. And whenever I was in the local market, I didn't understand. Sometimes I was also in, um, in a management in the local market. I had sometimes so many questions like, okay, why do they ask us to implement it here? It doesn't work in this market. Why don't they even ask us in the first hand? to get a feedback, to understand, would something like that work in our market? Once I went to work in the headquarters, then I started to realize it was a bit cultural because the company was a cultural pride in that country. And of course, as a cultural pride, if we've done so good, we're so good, it's only human that you think that we are the best, we know how the best is and how to best do it. This is just human. But culturally, there was also a difference in terms of one culture was more engaging. For instance, at work in a company in Estonia, it is absolutely common that if a boss or executive comes and says, we need to do this, and anybody in the team, it doesn't matter in which level. I can be a CEO of a fashion retailer and then a shop assistant doesn't like what I said and doesn't see that it can work out in the shop level, whatever decision I had made. They will come and tell me. 
they will come and say, I don't think it works. It doesn't work this way or this way or this way or because of this or because of this. When you go, for instance, in Russia, there you need to be very careful. You cannot go and tell to the boss that, sorry, your decision doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So it's culturally, and you can already see how many conflicts you can only create by putting together two cultures where one culture likes to have discussions and wants to discuss it through and is very open to feedback from it doesn't matter in which level the person works, but just to get the feedback to make sure that there is the best decision. And then another culture where the hierarchy is very important and where you're going to lose your face if you tell to your boss that, sorry, decision is wrong. Hmm. And now speaking about that and the hierarchy and how communication works in different countries, what came to mind when you mentioned Russia, Estonia and the US is China. I mean, they probably have one of the world's most distant communication gaps between top management and the lower management, let's say. So, And since you have some experience from China as well, I would like you to give us some examples from that market and what was the main challenge there? Because China is becoming the world power in a few years, probably going to overpass America. And so we'll have more managers dealing with China. So what was your experience? Yeah, China is completely different, also culturally different. But once you understand it, it's not that difficult. You just need to understand the culture and the cultural aspects. To bring an example... We're working in an international team where there were also people from China and the rest of the people, there were people from US, there were people from Europe, from different countries. So it was a quite an international team. And in the first team meeting, it was also everything online because you don't fly to US and then to China. It takes too long. So a lot of it had to be done online. And we had the first meeting and we did everything the way that it's usually done in the Western cultures. You look at the task, you divide it up and then you say, who does what? Okay, mm -hmm. And we already noticed that, okay, the Chinese are very quiet on the call. They don't say too much. And then when we said, okay, then this is your task, this is your task, they didn't still say anything. And then the deadline arrives and there is no delivery from China. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so what do we do now? We have a deadline. We need to do something. And some of the Westerners, they started getting angry and everything. And, and I'm like, Guys, let's calm down. Let's think a moment. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe we said it the wrong way that they have a task. And it turned out that this task for them was really not a priority. They had nothing to lose if they don't do it. Oh, okay. And as in China, they are not so direct like we are used to, for instance, in the Western world, that if something sucks, the people say it sucks. They're, they are not so direct because for them, keeping the face is very important. They don't come and they don't tell you that I'm not going to do it. They just don't do it. And you need to understand it and you need to understand you can't change them. You need to think next time, how do you do it? Another great example is that we opened a unit in India. Now, this is an Indian example mm -hmm. where we wanted to have one unit in India, which did a lot of the manual labor for us. And initially we said, okay, we need 10 people there working. We had the entire hiring process. We had 10 candidates. The day comes, let's say it's the 1st of April. We want to open our activities there. From 10 candidates, only five show up. And we're like, okay, where are the other five? We selected 10. We spoke with them. Nobody called and nobody said, I'm not coming or I got another offer. 
And then it turned out, yeah, they will not come to you and they will not tell you that I'm not going to come. They had received other offers. We called the other five as well. And then, of course, they said, I'm already working there in a different company. But they will not come to you and they will not tell you that I'm not coming. And you cannot expect them to do it because culturally they will not do it. And it's nothing bad. That's how it is. You need to then adapt your process. So next time when we had to hire two people, we made sure that we got four people. And then we held our thumbs that when the first day of activities was happening, that there is two people showing up. Okay. So you need to adapt your processes. There is no point in getting mad or getting angry or wasting the energy there. You need to waste your energy on trying to adapt to that cultural environment. So this is really interesting. And we're talking about different, very distant cultures like China, India. It is very distant from our culture. How do you go when, you, when you're in charge of an assignment in those countries? Who do you talk to when you get there? Do you prepare in advance? Are there like manuals that are mandatory that you consult? Is there anything or anybody who facilitates the process so that once you're there, you don't get shocked? It's difficult. You you will get shocked if you haven't had too much exposure to different cultures. If you've already had exposure to different cultures, you will be less shocked because you know that there will be some shocks. Mm -hmm. But if you don't wait for them, you will be a lot more shocked. Of course, there are books written about the Indian culture, the Chinese business culture that you can always get yourself into and read those different books. At the end of the day, when you go in that culture, the number one key is you need to get local contact that you can trust and you can talk with. Don't go there being arrogant, thinking I'm coming from the Western world. I know everything and I don't need anyone local. I will do it all myself. No, it doesn't work. The number one thing, if you don't have already somebody in your network from those regions because you're getting your first exposure, then you need to start by networking there as soon as possible mm-hmm. and get your trusted companion there with whom you can talk, openly talk. Ideally, you would go for somebody who has also been in the Western world so that they would also understand you a bit instead of somebody who's only in the local, which means wherever you've been educated, I would start by going with your university. Like I was at the Vienna University of Economics and Business. I would go through the alumni network there. That would be my first step. Mm-hmm. I would go and look for people who are actually Indian, but they also studied at this university. That is always the best way to access. And this is something that you can do already before you go in that country. So you need to do your homework definitely before and ideally have your contact person already before. That helps you to give a bit of light to the culture, to the surprises that might await you. Perfect. So this is an excellent introduction to my next question. And that's about the International Advisory Board that you're president of. So what are the main activities or are there any projects ongoing right now that you have? Yes, we have multiple projects there. We try to keep our alumni as active as possible and we do different activities for the alumni. One of the key projects that I'm engaged right now with is making it in Austria, which is related to helping people who are not in Austria but want to come and do business in Austria or want to find a work in Austria to really help them understand Austria a bit better. So this is a mentoring program, you could say. And there is another big mentoring program coming up. I can't talk too much about it right now yet, but a lot of focus will be on the mentoring side. Okay, excellent. So speaking about the studies now and people studying, what was one major takeaway from your MBA program when you did it? 
and how has it changed your approach to business and or life? Well, my global executive MBA from VU changed a lot for me, not only professionally, even a lot more for me as a person. The key takeaway was actually that prioritization and balance are the name of the game in life, not only at work, but also in life. What do I mean by it? You need to really prioritize different tasks. As someone who always likes to give 200% or 500%, you know, I'm just a bit overachiever, <laughs> then this program made me see how insane this is, that you really need to prioritize and you need to know when to give that 200% and you need to know when also 80% is enough because the additional 20% will only give a marginal impact to the result. So the prioritization part, the balance part was definitely, I realized also in this because the program is quite challenging, especially I was in parallel. I just started my new role as a CEO in public-private partnership. So doing the MBA, at that point, I was also a single mother, being a single mother, and then also in parallel having this job. That was already something. And life doesn't work without balance. What I also found out a lot in the balance side through this program for myself is that if in life you start tilting too heavily no matter in which direction. As I said, I had to juggle between being an executive student and a mother. If I become too heavily engaged only being a student or too heavily engaged only being an executive and I forget the other directions in life, then it means that there is something in those other directions that I'm afraid of, that I don't want to face, and that's why I lose my balance. That was the truth for me. So prioritizing balance is the name of the game in life. Wow, that what you just mentioned, I never considered from that point of view. Fear is what stops you actually taking charge of some of the points in your life that are important. So that's, that's really something to meditate upon and an excellent point. And speaking about prioritization, that's something we need more input from you. So <laughs> where did you put your priorities? Yeah, that's, that's very important because your situation, as you mentioned, having a job, being a mother and a single mother at that, that's kind of like probably 80% of students in this program are facing. So where did you put your focus? In the time of the studies, my focus was a lot on the studies. But I also had, before I started my studies, I had made an agreement with my son. For instance, I said, you know, now for the next 14 months or 16 months, I might forget already how long the program was. Um, for this time, I need to travel more. I need to study because I am doing this program. So we had this agreement done beforehand so that the related parties knew. Um, also at work, I had done the agreement beforehand and this helped me a lot. When it comes to now me in life and balance in general in life, as I have achieved a lot in the executive world, you can see my balance was tilted towards executive world. Mm -hmm. Why was it tilted towards that? It took me a long time to figure it out, but it was exactly the fear again, because there I was successful. And I've been blessed with quite bright mind, so there I could always use it. I was never good on the emotional side or dealing also with my own emotions or to even understanding them. And that's why I walked easily away from private life mm -hmm. and I was, you know, postponing it because that was my fear until I realized that, holy crap, it doesn't work. You, you can't only be an executive. You need to do a lot more in your life. 
And without balance, you're going to burn yourself out. You will never be satisfied. And I don't want to find out when I'm at 70 years old, I don't want to find out that I'm only running in this direction because my fear is that. So I took the time to face my fear. And now I'm enjoying a lot more balanced life, <laughs> being married and having a career in parallel and not giving up on any sides. So yeah, that's also a lot to do with the balance. And there is no such thing that you keep running in one direction. It means that then you are running away from the other directions because of something. Hmm. Now, before we wrap up, and I ask you to add something of your own, if you want to add something, I want to read and go back in time some years and read one interesting comment by Professor Thomas Byrne. He said, and I quote, May was a student of mine at Manmouth University, where she excelled in finance and economics. She was so bright, I asked her to come work for my firm, Burn Investment Research. So it pays to be attentive in class, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> now, speaking about the, the subjects and the subject matter, what would you give as an advice to our MBA students? Where should they put their focus? In course of the studies, put a lot of focus on networking. Okay. This is one of my biggest mistakes that I did in course of the executive MBA because I've always been afraid of networking. That's always been my fear. I can talk on the computer and everything, but I'm not too big of a friend of networking because of my fears. Hmm. And at that point in time, I still let that fear guide me. Yes, I made a lot of great acquaintances in course of my own class, but I didn't use the maximum out of that program in networking because you're not only with your class, you, you get an opportunity to meet people from other continents in course of the final work that you do there. So put the emphasis on networking. And of course, don't forget also the insights that all the professors bring you. But the network that you get from the executive MBA is something that binds you for life. These are really the people because they are all going to be in a difficult situation for this two years or one and a half years that you're in the program because they all need to juggle between having a family, having a job and then doing the education. So there is this common ground with all of you and this one thing that you've done in the life which binds you. And these are the people that you can then always don't matter if it's even 10 years later, you can always pick up the phone and call and they will pick up your phone and they will talk to you. So networking, networking, networking. That's excellent. And thank you so much. We've been hearing a lot about networking and that really is the point. So networking is the key. Now, May, for the end, if you would like to add anything, and I mean anything, please do so. The only thing I'd like to add is maybe that my book is out. I also got over the fear of putting my thoughts in a book. So decision-making model, which I have used through my career, which I have self-developed and the decisions communication model, mm -hmm. which has helped me a lot throughout my executive career, also in all of my projects, which has helped me to make successful decisions. This is now out in a book. So I really hope that you will find it also as helpful as I have found. And where is it? And in, is it in English? First version in English and in Estonian, also in German. And where will we be able to buy it? Available through my own website. Should also be in Amazon. We'll take a bit of time still to do the negotiations with Amazon. 
but definitely available through my own website. Perfect. And we'll have also the link to your LinkedIn profile and your website on our VO Academy webpage. So everyone interested, please check out May's new book. I'm looking forward to it. And so at this point, I just want to thank you for being here. It was really such an honor learning from you. And this was really enlightening on so many levels. Thank you. Thank you so much, May. Thank you, Sedomir, for having me here. Thank you. Hello again. Thank you for listening to this episode of VEU Executive Academy podcast, Know How to Inspire. Now, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to our channel on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, or check out our website at www.executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. That is executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. Last but not least, spread the word, because the more you share knowledge, the more inspiring it gets.